Uh, welcome to the Masters of Automation podcast series. Uh, in today's episode, um, I have Robert Enston. Uh, welcome, Robert. It's a pleasure to have you join the podcast oh. episode. Yeah, it's great to join you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Robert. Um, so Robert Enston joins the iPad most recently from Google Cloud, uh, where he served as the president of Global Customer Operations. In that role, he led global field operations, tripling the size of the sales organization and driving Google Cloud's growth at scale. He also spent 27 years at SAP in various leadership roles across sales and ops. In his final role at SAP, he served as president, cloud business group, and executive board member, where he led the development and delivery of SAP's entire portfolio of cloud applications and services including SAP Conquer, Ariba, and customer experience. Um, that said, it's a, my absolute pleasure to have you today in the podcast episode. And, and as the RPA community, we are thrilled to have you join the RPA world and looking forward to see how your expertise in Google Cloud and SAP are going to impact uh, the automation world. Uh, that said, um, how, how did your journey begin uh, that led you to the technology space and then to SAP and Google? Yeah, Al, thank you. Great question. I can give you a long answer for this one. It's because it's been a long career <laughs> uh, and a very fruitful one. You know, it's, I, I started my career in financial services, in banking. It was my dad's dream that I would be a, a bank manager one day and kind of only lasted six months. I actually just did not want to be in the banking world. And I was fascinated by the first PCs that came out uh, and what could be achieved on the PC. Um, and so I decided to go and study programming, computer programming, and because I really wanted to write programs. Um, on I It was just fascinating to see that you could code something and you could watch it on a screen come out and you could interact with the screen by writing certain code. So, I, I started to uh, to program and I, I started with assembler programming in the very early days, which was pretty complex. It's um, ones and zeros basically and understanding registers, things that today everybody takes for granted. Um, but that led me to becoming a little obsessed in terms of why computers crashed. What, what happened when a computer crashed? Why did it crash and how did you uncover the reasons for it crashing. So I started to read something called Dumps. Dumps was basically a, a printout of the computer's memory. And it told, and by reading the computer's memory, you were able to determine what created the crash and then you could fix the, the, the crash so that it wouldn't happen again. And I did that for, for a long time. And then in the, in some point in time, I actually got engaged in operating systems um, IBM operating systems, MBS, VSE, and VM, and uh, transactional processes like CICS and databases like IMSDB, and and uh, so I was very technical in my uh, in my very early stage, uh, and because of that, SAP, which was a very young company, um, this was all in South Africa, was a very young, SAP was a very young company in nineteen. 91, they started speaking to me when I joined SAP South Africa. There were basically only eight people in the company in South Africa at that stage when I joined. Um, I was one of eight, actually. And I was hired because I was able to understand CICS or KICS, um, and I had a very deep technical background. And so I could um, understand how to 
implement the R2 system and so on. And what really excited me was the ability to, um, SAP were coming out with a new product called R3. And I was fascinated by this product because it was written on Unix. It was written on a Unix operating system. And at that point in time, the world, all applications were pretty much all business applications were written on mainframes, um, big mainframe systems. And so this was something which was going to be unique. It's, it was different. Everybody thought it would fail. There was a big argument in those days that there's no way that a big business would ever run their business applications on a Unix system. So I thought this is going to be a fascinating challenge. And I got engaged with SAP and I joined SAP 1992 and spent a significant part of my career at SAP. And then um, all the way, as you said, through running the cloud business, including engineering and sales. And I ran sales at SAP for a very long time. I lived in Japan for a while. I came to the United States in 1997. Um, and so that was, you know, a very fruitful career. I think SAP has done amazing um, stuff in the ERP space for, for many, many years. And it's obviously a household name today everywhere in the world. And then, in the, you know, as, as, it evo as things evolved, Google Cloud came along. And, you know, I was like, the cloud is really going to be something spectacular. Um, the days when people, when I was early days of the cloud was, you know, you had to have a single provider, a single, everybody was choosing a single cloud provider and you had to select between AWS and Azure. And then there was little upstart called Google cloud and everybody's like, no, Google cloud, they're a consumer company. They don't understand cloud and so on. <laughs> so I took it as another challenge. And, um, you know, when I met, when I joined Google cloud, the whole challenge was kind of, it was like a clean sheet of paper, actually, to be honest, and, you know, it was a very small customer facing organization. We had to scale it really quick. Um, we had a significant budget to go and do that. Um, and there were you know, a lot of good things that took place. We, we more than tripled the sales organization, I would say almost five times uh, the size. Um, we hired thousands of people through a pandemic um, and brought that alive um, through the pandemic. But joining Google Cloud was really about understanding data and AI and ML. And I felt that there was no company in the world that was better equipped at data, understanding data, and understanding AI and, uh, AI and ML. And it was the same thing with ERP. Like I really believed that the next generation of applications would need AI, would need unstructured data to become really relevant and, and really um, competitive. So joining Google was kind of, I, I guess a, a, an amazing experience because of the technical talent that Google has and the ability to innovate uh, that Google had. And so it was a fantastic three years. And then my path led me to automation. You notice I don't use the word RPA. I use the word automation a lot because I think RPA is just a, corn, a small slither of what automation could be. And when I spoke, you know, when I was sitting down with Daniel talking about, you know, we automation could be, I'd actually known UiPath four or five years earlier because we had looked at different companies and Blue, Blue Prism and Automation Anywhere came up. And then when I was at Google, we looked at it again because our competitor went into the automation space. He wanted to understand what was happening in that space. I, I understood what was happening. And then when I spoke to a number of people, including Daniel, you know, it was pretty clear to me that UiPath's vision for RPA was truly fulfilled in terms of how they had accomplished it, 
but I was completely surprised about how far they'd come in the automation space. And that for me was about discovery. Uh, it was about low code, no code. It was about workflow. It was about using AI, UI, and API. You know, it was about testing. And I felt looking at the market that UiPath did not understand that they had probably the, the world's full automation platform in their hands and that companies really needed to see the benefits of it. And so that's why I ended up, plus I like Daniel a lot and I like the product a lot and I thought the culture was cool. So there was just a bonus as part of it. That, that is really cool. And I think you said something very interesting that um, usually when people um, disbelieve that something is going to happen, that's probably a good sign that it is going to happen well. Um, because a lot of the people take up the challenges. So speaking um, about your experiences at Google Cloud and SAP, um, so they're the world's largest tech giants, and mm -hmm. you led their revenue teams to be very successful at very successful outcomes. So my audience would love to learn more about some of your learnings in, in handling complex challenges and, and helping the tech giants grow and scale. So can you share some of your experiences at Google Cloud and SAP, just building high performance teams, challenges you faced and how people adopted and reacted to the change? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's an interesting, um, you know, some of, the, some of the lessons learned from both, from both companies. Um, and, you know, I've learned this as I've became more experienced over time and, and from making my own mistakes uh, along along the way, um, I mean, the, probably the, the biggest thing I would say is you have to believe in in the mission and the and, and the vision of where you want to take a company, and every and all leaders need to be able to be bought into that process. And and by that I mean it, talent makes a difference, people make a difference. If you have the right teams in place, you can pretty much take a, a, anything on. And I go back to my days at SAP. You know, in 2008, when the financial markets collapsed, that was a pretty scary time. It's not unlike what we're seeing right now in the markets, but it was a pretty scary time um, for everybody. And, you know, that was across the world. It happened at one point in time. It was kind of like something that happened immediately. And what I realized is that as a leader, you need to get the other leaders engaged in what the future is going to look like and you need to focus on the success of the future and you need to help people you know move the needle i always used to have a saying it's you know you, you don't scream at the people you scream you, you scream at the subjects the objects the things that are in your way and you help the people move get the people to move because they feel passionate about helping other folks move so one of the things i i did you know in 2009 i took 400 of my vps away uh, to an offsite um, to get them to buy into what the future vision of SAP would be around customers, how we would be successful, how we would actually work through this incredible um, headwind that we were facing. And my view was if I could get 50% of the sales management to believe in this, I would be successful. Um, and that proved to be actually true. Um, if enough care, you can move the needle and you know, it's not about the top 12 people in the company. It's not about the top six. It's about enough of us need to care to move the needle and to give inspiration to the others to follow us. 
And so that's always stayed with me. Um, you know, when going to Google was the same thing. Google was a little different in that Google was not, um, was not as scaled as SAP was. You know, SAP was a scaled sales organization for many, many years. Um, and so when 2009 collapsed, it was about moving the company in a new direction and getting everybody to believe in that direction. At Google, it was almost building it from scratch, almost at a, a free canvas. I could paint whatever I wanted on the canvas. And the first thing I did was hire super leaders around me. Like I believe like if there's a team, you need great leaders and everybody on that team needs to be focused on winning. It's not about one winning. It's not about the individual winning. It's about the team winning. And so when you have great leaders, you can do amazing things. And, you know, when you scale an organization from 1,000 to over 11,000 through a pandemic, um, and you take the revenue from five to 25 billion uh, in three years, a lot of good things need. So I give all the credit to the people that we hired, the leadership that we brought on, on board. And we did things at speed. Like we did things very different at SAP. SAP was a proven sales organization with a proven methodology. It was about getting people aligned around the right mission. Google did not have that. Google Cloud did not have a proven sales methodology. It was new people. It was growing everywhere in the world. So we empowered the leaders in the region to make decisions and make it fast because why? We needed to be faster than the other competitors. And you be faster than the other competitors by ma making the decision points at the customer. And that's what, made the, that's what made a huge difference. My leaders could make decisions at the customer. We were much faster than all of our comp competitors and customers felt it. They felt that there was empowerment, that they could work with us, that they could do things that they couldn't do with others because of the bureaucracy. And so when you look at this, this is how you, you, you think about how do you create things that are different? How do you create competitive advantage in a world where everybody says all the clouds are the same? That's not true. And so that's how we focused on, 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 on both of those companies, SAP and, and Google Cloud. And I guess the same is true a little bit for UiPath. Well, that's a fascinating story, especially because it enables people to make decisions quick in, in different regions. And, and that ties to multiple things because it's a global company. There are multiple back people with multiple backgrounds and orchestrating all of them and aligning them on a single vision um, definitely takes a very good strategy. And and tying that to um, my questions is that so you 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 said you lived in Japan, you worked in Japan, you you worked with uh, leaders and different uh, people from around the world and um, across like Asia and Europe. And then what were some observable behaviors and that stood out to you about how work is done yeah and <laughs> good question i've lived i lived for three years in japan so i actually ran sap's business in japan i ran our latin american business there i ran all the global business i'd spent time in germany um i grew up in south africa um and i've lived I think four places in the United States. I've been, I've lived in over nine, 10 different places in the world in, in my time. So I actually have a pretty broad global experience. There are a couple of things that you learn through your career. One is that growing up in South Africa, you know, we didn't have a lot. You did a lot with little. And so people are like, what does that mean? I said, well, you don't, you don't spend a lot of money on consulting companies. You do things, you know, I was, when I, when I joined SAP, I was a, I was a, 
pre-sales person. I was the trainer. I was the consultant. I was the sales. When you have eight people, you are everything, right? You sit in, you open the trunk of your car and you actually change the foils and the slides before you go and present to this customer. You learn, you learn how to, you learn to be scrappy and you learn to get the job done with the same software that big companies in the United States or in Europe are running with lots of consult with lots of consulting. So you learn that in you, you know I learned that in Africa um, in a big way. It also taught me to do a lot of things myself over over time. Coming to the United States, it was like oh my gosh, here's an abundance. Like this. <laughs> Everybody, every partner, every SI is the IBM and Accenture and Deloitte, and they just got thousands of consultants and so on. It's like a completely different world. And so you learn something different, but you know, you love the experience of the US, which is like, just go for it, like, just make it happen, like, this, just right. And so you get that ingrained in you, and then you pick some pieces of that up. And then when you go to Japan, everything's quiet. It's just like, like, and you want to shake the world. Come on, let's move. <laughs> let's, let's do something. Right? And so, um, you know, all along, the, I learned probably the most in Japan from how to work with people and how to understand people. Because when I came in first thing, and you know, my very first experience was I had, a, I had a Saturday lunch meeting with my CFO and my head of sales because I was the president of SAP Japan. I was pretty young. Um, there was a Saturday in Japan. I arrived on Friday. Saturday was my first meeting. And we had a lunch. And the lunch was kind of awkward because I didn't really speak Japanese. I actually didn't speak any Japanese. And their English was so bad that we didn't really know what we were speaking <laughs> to each other about. So my Saturday was, okay, this is not the right way to work with these folks. I've got to figure out another way to work with the thing. And then... And then um, you know, and then it was then it was a case of how do I engage my personality with the Japanese so that it can work for both of us. And I learned that over the you know a couple of years how to respect them, how to get the best out of them, how to make them feel like I was on their side. Um, but I was different. I didn't I didn't try to be Japanese. I thought there was you know that would be fake. It would not be who I am. Would not be what represented. But I needed to figure out what to respect about them. Why would I not to bring my African or my American and just, you know, kind of install it in their culture and make that happen? And so I did a lot of things in Japan, which was very different. Like, you know, I used to, which is unusual for a president to actually sit next to salespeople in their desk and ask them what they're doing every day. I used to walk around the office and sit next to and get really close and acquainted. I used to run all the sales forecasts for uh, almost 18 months while I taught people how to actually... Um, run it. I hired again a really good leadership team, but I did it really fast and quick. And so over over periods, I've learned you know how to deal with the different cultures and how to make it how to make it work with the Europeans, with the Germans. Um, everyone is different, and everyone operates differently. You know, we're all humans, but at the end of the day, if you can in a global organization, if you can make the benefit of our diversity work for your company. It's an amazing, it's an amazing thing to see happen. Um, it's hard. It's not easy because we don't come with the same thinking. We come with different thinking, and that's the power of diversity: is bringing that different thinking together to 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 uh, to make something happen. Um, having worked at a German company for twenty seven years, I can tell you, it's very different than an American <laughs> company. But but what it what it's given me is an I am. Um, 
kind of like an identity with them. So I, I feel very comfortable around different countries, different people, different nations and so on, um, because I can understand them and I can actually adapt slightly to the way that they want to operate. And there's different speed, like the US is fast, China's fast, Southeast Asia's fast, they wanna get things done. Right? The Japanese are a little slower, more careful. They wanna make certain the product's perfect before they bring it out. They're embarrassed if the product's not perfect. The Americans are like, 75% is good enough, let's go, <laughs> right? Um, the Germans wanna speak for like four hours before they make a decision. Let's, like, let's have a real debate. Like why debate? <laughs> let's just go make a decision, please, right? And so, you can't change the cultures of people and how they grow up because that's just ingrained in everything they do. It's the same companies. Companies have a certain culture and it's it's who they are and it's how do you adapt to it? How do you fine tune it? How do you evolve it over time? But it doesn't really change. So those are the kinds of things that I've learned. And I would just tell everybody, you know, in your audience, audience the, the more you can experience different cultures, different places, um, at a depth, um, I think the, the, the better, the, you know, the, the gives you the ability to really run global organizations at scale. Um, and one of the benefits I think I've had is that I have more global experience than a lot of executives. You know, I don't come with just the US-based thinking, you know, having, having lived around the world and understood it. And I feel like it's a, it's a huge advantage for me. I think having that well-rounded experience about how um, other people with from other backgrounds may think, may feel, actually makes it much more easier to work with them and and bring people together. And and since now doing automation um, is part of our work, um, it's also very interesting to see how different cultures react to it and and adopt it, and in certain ways. Um, they love it in certain ways. They don't like it, or maybe they're more cautious against it. Um, so as so as we are keep reinventing the future of work, right? Like we're introducing new concepts like uh, telehealth, where patients can speak to doctors over the phone in virtual spaces, building remote offices that leverage global workforce, or like real time orchestration um, within the data systems that allow vaccination deliveries. Um, so as um, call centers react to that, we look for faster delivery experience, better customer experience and removing mundane work. Um, maybe like getting an invoice, which everyone thinks of <laughs> the first thing comes to mind. So as automation is all around us and, and if we tie it to also some of the uh, different countries that you've seen and how people react or adopt change. Um, what word do you think is still untapped? <laughs> well, I, I think we're at the very, very beginning of it. Um, and, you know, I'll give you this visual picture because, the, you know, I get this question a lot. So it, will automation replace me? Will it replace work? Is it a replacement for human beings and so on? The same was commented around AI and ML. Right. And unfortunately, computers are smart, but they still need to have human intervention at some point. Humans in the loop, as we say. Right. Um, but just take just take a picture in your head of an automotive manufacturing company in 1960 and go and look down an automation, an autumn, 
an automotive car manufacturer's plant in 1960. And what you'll see is hundreds of people working on lines, carrying parts, and so on. If you have the same picture in your head today, there's no one. It's empty. There's no people in that, in that, in that process. And yet we have the lowest unemployment the world's ever seen. Right. And so I think when you look at all of the technology, it advances mankind. It advances mankind in ways that's really, really important. Um, it advances automation, in my opinion, advances mankind because there's a need to be faster. Why is there a need to be faster? Well, in 2008, Mr. Jobs came out with an iPhone. And when the iPhone came out, it was a smart device and it basically put in our fingertips, wherever we are, the ability to do business to business communication, to do business to consumer, to be able to decide things wherever we are and make decisions happen. And so the time crunched came rapidly. The internet crunched the amount of time. When I started working in the 90s, we used to have to go back to the office to do email because there was no email on the move. You went to an office, you captured your email, and then you went home, right? So you think about how that time is crunched. Then in the 90s, the internet came about, and oh, we're going to do shopping on the internet. Oh my God, we can buy things on the internet. That's unbelievable. That's like, this is 2000. I mean, this is not even like that for long ago. And in 2008, right, the first iPhone comes out and there was, oh, now, and today we take it for granted, right? And so speed has happened in order to, in order to, for the world to progress, the world will eventually, I think there's about 8 billion people on the planet or like 7.8 billion people on the planet. And, and they basically, they, they judge 9.2 is gonna be the maximum amount of folks, but there's lots of countries with negative, with negative growth, negative demographics. But more important, like the humans, humans can only operate at a certain speed. So we need to be certain that humans are used for their best capabilities. If you think about a doctor, we spoke about telehealth. Now think about a doctor. When you go to a doctor's office, they ask you the most mundane, dumb questions ever. How are you feeling? Well, I came here. I'm not feeling that great. Well, is it your head that's sore? Is it this that's sore? Is it that? that? Can't all this stuff be done? So by the time you go to the doctor, the analysis is done. Automation's already collected the information for the doctors, gone to the best sites in the world. So the doctor's time is used for the most critical things is looking at you, talking to you, and all that information is already done for it. Why should we go through that, that, that whole process? There's so much that can happen in terms of automation in the future that can make every bit of our lives and jobs more effective. I also think it can give us more quality time with family. You know, we talk about work has changed. I think COVID has completely changed the work balance, the work-life balance, what jobs people accepted in 2019 that they won't accept in 2020 or 2021 or 2022. And in the future, it will change, will change again. And I think automation can effectively help us get better work-life balance, can make us more productive, and can make us operate at a different speed clock. Right, we still have to use all the incredible log logical powers that humans have to understand and read information in making those final decisions. So there's never going to be a situation where humans, humans are not in the loop. We will always be in the loop. I think the value of our time will be just much better utilized today than it was 15, 20 years ago. And so I don't think anybody should ever worry about not having a role or a job. Um, automation will never replace that. Um, it's certainly just going to make us more effective.
and it's going to make companies more effective. We're going to do things with better, with higher quality than, than we can. Like humans are great at understanding logic, horrible to repeat something. You know that, you, you know that, that, that game, right? We all sit around a chair and you pass something around to 15 people and you say, I love. And by the time it comes out, it's like, I have no idea what somebody says. Like, how did with 15 people, did something get so wrong so quickly? Right, because humans are just not good at doing things the standardized way. We just that's not who we are. But automation does it really perfectly, right? And so, so there's lots of benefits for automation. We, I think, we're only at the beginning. That's what excites me about UiPath and what we're doing, um, and how automation can help companies in the future. And I, I think there's no real limits to what's possible. Um, uh, I think the opportunity is just simply incredible. I mean, even my career and along with um, other UiPath MVPs and other people within the community, it the automation created so many job opportunities for people to come and and shine. So, so I, I agree with that. I think the we are just in the beginning of this cycle, and and more we realize so much of the world is created with mechanic processes. And the opportunities are even more limitless yeah. <laughs> to, to automate them. Exactly. So. Uh, that, that said, I, I, I really appreciate uh, you coming on and, and taking the time to speak with me. Um, I, I really enjoyed your conversation and I think my audience will find a lot of information and insights to learn from you. Um, I'm looking forward to see how you're going to impact the uh, automation world. <laughs> I'll, thank I'll, you very much yeah it's my total pleasure and thanks for inviting me and uh you know hopefully uh there's some small little lessons along there that, that people can utilize and benefit from and you know i i just say to everybody just never be afraid of trying to do something that's great never give up if you believe in it and you know the harder you work the luckier you're going to get and uh just stay focused on what's uh, going to keep you positive and you know this is this is all about improving our lives. So thank you.